use debt to your advantage. I think there's a reason they call it leverage and a lot of people jump into loans and it's a great idea to structure those the right way and it can save you a lot of time and pain in the long run. Best ever listeners, you ready to take your online advertising into the big leagues? Are you ready to get more leads? Well, how about we do all this for free? Yeah, sure. Free. Well, it starts out with a free strategy session with Dan Barrett. You recognize his name. Episode 565 titled Google AdWords and Cutting Edge Strategies. He's the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. That's why I'm talking about him. And he's managed over a million dollars of client spend and scored an 80th percentile for or higher for best practice. Basically, he knows his stuff. And... He is offering a free strategy session for one hour to do a deep dive with you and learn about your market and collaboratively come up with an online advertising strategy based on your target audience. And he's offering to do this for the best ever listeners. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Now I mentioned free. Well, the strategy session is free and then you can either take the online advertising strategy that he comes up with on the call and go implement it yourself. There you go. It's free. Or you can have him and his agency do it for you. It's a turnkey solution. And by the way, that likely wound up being free too, assuming that you're closing on the leads that he's generating for you as a result of all the efforts. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. He's got some amazing stuff. Ask him about the pre-targeting for direct mail lists that he does. It's something unique to their company, and it's pretty exciting stuff. He's noticing some tremendous results as a result of doing pre-targeting. So ask him about that. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluffy stuff. With us today, Steve O'Brien. How you doing, Steve? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well, and I am looking forward to our conversation because you are a multifamily investor on a large scale, and I'm looking forward to learning as much as I can from you, and I'm sure the best ever listeners are as well. Steve is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Arkin Capital he is responsible for the acquisition of over 20 multifamily assets totaling close to $200 million in the last five years. He's placed nearly $100 million in financing through various loan programs and sources. And prior to co-founding this company, he was with CBRE. He's in Atlanta, Georgia. With that being said, Steve, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your focus? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. I got into real estate at CBRE as an analyst. So my background goes back to the numbers and the analytics and started in the debt and equity finance group. So I got introduced to real estate on that finance side and got an opportunity to do a ton of underwriting and see a lot of deals at CBRE. And also got to see that market crash from up close in 2008, which was a great opportunity to learn about what was done right and what was done wrong. After that, my business partner and I got together and started Arkin Capital to invest in multifamily assets in the southeastern U.S. And we have a focus on value-add investing. 
based on your experience in underwriting through CBRE and your own practical experience, what are some ways that your underwriting has evolved from when you started to where you're at now? I actually think it's a constantly evolving process. We do have our own model that's an Excel model, and I think just about everyone has something that they rely on from a modeling perspective. But I think I learned something new on every deal. One of the interesting things about real estate is it doesn't happen overnight. I'm getting a deal done soup to nuts can take years. It can take a year to close a deal sometimes. So I think if you aren't constantly evolving and changing with the market, you're going to end up stale and, and missing some things. So I'd say our model is a living document that we change based on every deal, but we just try and stay true to our foundations. You can make a model say almost anything you want it to say. It's about the data you put in it and making sure your assumptions and results are correct. What are some of the foundations that are always constant? I'd say the way that we make the calculations. We try to focus on keeping the math consistent and trying to stay away from some of the tricks and the underwriting that you can do. Since income is supposed to always be higher than expenses, you grow your income and your expenses at the same rate, you're going to create a positive wedge. So just recognizing things like that and being aware of where your model can overestimate and underestimate things based on the numbers you put in it. That's where we try and be the most consistent. Never let yourself get too far out of your fairway and out of your comfort zone from the underwriting. As far as some things we might overestimate or underestimate, specifically, based on your experience, what are things in the past that you have specifically either overestimated or underestimated and you've tweaked since then? Well, I think you always start with the rent growth. In general, when somebody's presenting you with data on a property, a trailing 12, or even if it's just a trailing six, you should be able to come to your conclusion about what the income has been pretty easily. So it's all about projecting. And especially in the market that we're in right now, you've seen really high rent growth figures in markets throughout the Southeast and throughout the country. But I think you can get caught up in really juicing those figures and assuming that 5 and 6% annual rent growth is going to continue to occur. And the reality is it's all going to come back to the mean. So we try and be very careful if, if we can't justify a rent increase or we can't verify exactly what the more current market rent is, we'll go back to the data and say, where did they sign a lease last month? Where are they getting rents today? And what are the comps getting from our value add perspective? We're always trying to go into a property and improve something so that we're not simply relying on market timing. So when we get into the property, if I replace all the appliances, if I replace this, if I replace the light fixtures, how much rent is really on the table? Because if it's only $50 and I assume it's 100 that can really ruin your deal. So it all starts with rent growth and rent assumptions. How do you gather that data and the information to accurately project the rent as much as you can, knowing that you don't have a crystal ball? Well, I think you do your best with analysis. There are a lot of companies out there like Reese or CoStar that provide you with that sort of data. And at the same time, we think real estate's really a local business. So we'll focus heavily on the comps. So get to know the area and determine who your real comps are and determine where they're going. Because just because rents are going up in Atlanta or in Charlotte doesn't mean that in your particular market, you're going to get that same rental increase. You may have 
several brand new properties being built right down the street. Or you may have a property that's really old that got torn down that's going to increase your demand. So we try to focus on the micro market and make sure that we get as much data as we can on the comps and the specific properties that are competing and how they relate to our property. How do you determine who are the real comps? Because I'm sure brokers present comps to you and then you look at that, but then I'm positive that you also do your own assessment of who the comps are. So what do you look for to make sure that the property that you're underwriting is being compared against the real comps? Actually, that's a great question. And I think I love what you said to the real comps, because as you mentioned, and having been at CBRE and starting there, I can tell you the way the brokers look at comps is they're looking for things that support their analysis. And I think that's what everybody's doing. But as an investor, you need to have a more of an open mind. And I think you need to be willing to look for things that don't support your hypothesis so that you're willing to walk away from something that's not a good fit. The nice part about multifamily is it's pretty open from a data perspective. And if you call a property, you'd be surprised at how much data they're willing to give you. We will tour properties. We will call and say we're doing a market survey. And in general, multifamily is a fairly tight-knit community. And you'll find some properties that may not be 100% honest with you about occupancy and rental rates. But in general, if you drive around the properties and you get a feel for what type of property your property is, you can compare it, not dissimilar from how an appraiser might, age and, and quality. And then you can call them and say, hey, what are you getting for a two-bedroom? What are you getting for a one-bedroom? And it'll become pretty clear to you whether the numbers that you were given, whether it's by a broker or even by an appraiser, are realistic. But yeah, that's one of the great parts about multifamily is in general, there is an incentive for everyone to share this information. So you can get it. You just have to ask for it. As far as what you just said, age and quality, can you elaborate on that? And the reason I'm asking is let's pretend a multifamily investor just got a deal sent over to her and she is looking at the deal and she's like, okay, now I need to know where the rent comes. And it's an off-market deal, but she has access to databases as well as her car so she can drive around. How does she initially qualify the rent comps? What are the specific factors? Let's say this property was built in 1980 and it's in a B-class area. How does she go about actually finding the rent comps? I think that there's a big broad process that you can go through, but you have some very specific categories that you probably want to focus on. Number one is distance. I mean, the reality is something that's 10 miles away probably isn't one of your real comps. Now, in some of your very small markets, maybe one of the advantages you see is that there are only two comps within 10 miles. But in general, I'd say proximity is a very important factor and age is a very important factor. Construction is just like almost anything else. As the time goes on, things change. And as we've all seen, if you go look at deals that are built in the 60s and 70s, they can be very different from deals that are built in the 80s and 90s. And one of the things that we try and focus on from a value-add perspective is identifying similar age, similar construction quality, whether it's two stories versus one story, and ceiling height. One of the new buzzwords in multifamily is ceiling height. Nine-foot ceilings is a big deal right now for newer products because a lot of the older product has eight-foot ceilings. And it's up to you to determine can something be a comp if it's a nine foot and I'm an eight foot? 
I think you can and you can make adjustments up and down because that's what your clients are going to do. Residents are going to go back and forth and they're going to put a value on specific things. So a 2000 built property can be a comp with a 1980 property. It just depends on the other things that they offer. What are the amenities, pool, tennis, tennis courts, fitness center. So it's basically creating a list of property information and comparing that side by side. No different than when you're going online and they're trying to compare different software programs and you've got the checks by all the different things this software program does versus the other. We do it a very similar way. And then of course you can get as detailed as possible. You can compare the size of pools. You can compare the number of parking spaces and covered parking versus garage. So you can really take it down to a very, very micro level. But when you're looking for your comps, I think you need to stay a little bit more broad as far as age and construction quality and location. Mm -hmm. Generally, what have you found is the right distance to look for from the subject property? Everybody's different. I think that if you were just going to pick a number, I would say that it's within a couple of miles. The problem becomes it depends on your density and every market is different. So I think the answer to that question is based on where you are. And it can be a great benefit that you draw a radius outside from your property location. And in that two mile radius, you only have one company. That could be a great thing. It could also be a bad thing. It could be a sign that there's not a lot of demand in your area. So I think it's more about understanding your area, but we try to look in denser areas within a mile radius. In larger areas, we would typically draw the line around a five mile radius because in general, if someone's looking to live in an area, it's our opinion that five miles is about as far as they're going to live once they've made a decision, hey, this is the spot, this is where I want to be. You probably aren't going to go too much further than five miles, but you may have to expand that to get enough comps. And who knows what enough is? Is it four or five or is it 10? I think everybody has to determine that on their own. I'd love to hear you elaborate a little bit more about your example that you said where a 2000 built property can be a comp with a 1980 property depending on the amenities. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. So I think in general, there are certainly some construction changes between mid 80s product and the 2000s. Materials get better, but I think you'll also hear people say that they don't build them like they used to. So it's really about, I can have a 1980s pool that was built in the 1980s, but some of the new pools, they call them resort style pools. And it's a little bit bigger, a little more deck space. Maybe you've got grills out there. So it's about taking that single item, tennis courts. What condition are the tennis courts in? I can take a tennis court and for a relatively small amount of money, I can make it look and feel almost brand new. But if I have a 2000 deal and no one's touched that tennis court for 16 years, my 1980s tennis court could be better than the 2000. So I think it's about identifying what those specific amenities are and comparing them side by side. I think fitness centers are one of the big ones because in the 1980s, fitness centers weren't really a thing. That was at properties. And now it's a major component of a lot of the, the new deals that you'll see. Large fitness centers that you don't even need a gym membership anymore. So you go back and look at a 1980s deal and you have a little thousand square foot room that they put some equipment in and they call it their fitness center. And that's not really fair to compare to some of these big 5,000 square foot with free weights and all of the different ellipticals and all the different machines. Just because they both have a fitness center doesn't mean that 
it's fair to compare them apples to apples. So I think that's what I mean by amenities is something other than simply the living quarters and the units themselves. Dog wash stations, dog parks, car wash stations. We've seen some of the new deals, particularly student housing, which is a little outside of the multifamily box, but some of the new student housing deals are amazing. Full clubhouses with flat screen TVs and video game systems and pool tables. So not everything is created equal. So it's not just as easy as saying, yes, we both have a pool. I think you got to take a closer look at that pool and you got to take a closer look at those tennis courts instead of just assuming that the 2000 deal was better. That's probably a safe guess, but that's why you got to go put your eyes on it. Mm. What year properties do you want to buy now? I'd say right now we really like somewhere between 1980 and 2005. And the reason we like that is because we like to add value to things. And it's hard to add value to something that was built six years ago. Mm -hmm. You can, and there are some markets where it's certainly happened, where the growth has been so much that you're going from a Formica countertop and black appliances to granite countertops and stainless appliances because you can get substantially more rent for those upgrades. But in general, we like to focus on deals where we can make, we like to use the word transformation. So we like to take before pictures and after pictures and have a real wow factor. And you need some age in order to do that. And it's hard to create a wow factor for properties that are much newer than 2000, 2004. But you can go into some properties that age in 1984 and feels like a generation ago. And, <laughs> and, it, and it was. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen them too. You know, the old cabinets that you'll see in some of those 1980s deals when everybody liked the original wood grain look. And now everybody likes the bright, stark white kitchens. So things change. And I'm sure in 15 years, they'll go back and look at deals and say, oh man, that was built in the 2000 teens because of this style and that style. So we like to create that transformation and you need a little age in order to do that. And then real quick, clearly you can have some wow factor if you buy a 1960 property and you do the renovation. So why 1980 versus 1960 or 70? I think we see a lot of similarities between the construction. Not all of it, but you can sometimes find a 1985 deal, garden style apartment that's built very similarly to how they would build it today. And that's what you're looking for to really create that transformation and to decrease the age of the asset or the perceived age of the asset is, can I make this look new? And a lot of the 60s and 70s deals, well, especially the 70s, you get some of that modern architecture and it's hard to bring that property out of the 70s to make it look like it's no longer a 70s deal. And the same is true for some of the 60s properties as well where they're just changes that you can't make. Meanwhile, in the 80s, with vinyl siding or T111 wood or cedar siding, it's pretty easy in the scheme of things to rip that off and put on the new hardy siding, the cement board siding, and give it a fresh new look and make it look like it was built in the last 10 or 15 years. So that's why we try to stay away from a little bit older product. There are also a ton of other issues you can run into with aluminum wiring, asbestos, all sorts of environmental potential concerns that, frankly, people didn't know about in the 60s and 70s. And now that you know that, it can be a real pain to deal with those issues if you can avoid them. Let me pose a hypothetical scenario to you. You just got a lead from one of your friends in the business, and 
he said, hey, I've got this portfolio of 1960s properties, uh, let's say 300 units, and they're in a B-plus area that's trending towards an A. What do you do in that scenario? Well, I think rule number one for us is you got to go see the real estate. I mean, that's just rule number one, because there are a ton of deals that if you don't go put your eyes on them, you don't get the real assessment for what they are. And I would go to those properties and then I would start asking some of those bigger picture questions. You know, are there any environmental concerns? It copper wiring, polybutylene plumbing, those different materials from the past, asbestos, that can cause problems. But some of the coolest deals around now are currently loft deals that were formerly old warehouse and mill space, and they've been completely remediated, and they're beautiful deals and no environmental concerns. So I think rule number one is if something sounds interesting to me and it's a good area, I'm going to go see the property, and then I'm going to start asking the big miss questions, the things that can really hurt a deal and try and check off those big problems off my list so that I can focus on the little problems. You mentioned some of those questions, environmental concerns, the wiring. Just off the top of your head, what are some other questions that you would ask that would be the big ones that might kill the deal? It's all the major systems, especially for the older deals. Does it have central air or is it the wall units? Because that's something that it's really hard to get around is not having central air. And you just need to know that. It doesn't necessarily make the deal a bad deal. You just need to understand that part of it. But I would say roofs, the age of the siding, wiring, plumbing, and electrical systems in general. If the wiring is just old and needs to be replaced, that's a very expensive problem. And same thing for plumbing. It's really hard to get into the walls of a property to the extent that you can verify that those things either have been remediated or are in very good shape you can really avoid a big miss. Missing on one unit that turns out to be down is a relatively small miss on a reasonably sized property. But if it turns out that you have to rewire your whole property or you need to put new roofs on your entire property, that's going to cost you something substantial and that's going to really change your return. Steve, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? My best real estate investing advice ever is to use debt to your advantage I think there's a reason they call it leverage and a lot of people jump into loans and it's a great idea to structure those the right way and it can save you a lot of time and pain in the long run. I'd like to do a follow-up conversation with you about debt and leverage if you're open to that. Would you be open to that? Sure. Cool. All right. We'll have you on the show one more time so you can talk about that specifically. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Got your free strategy session to generate online leads yet? Well, if not, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Dan Barrett's going to give you a concrete online advertising strategy by the end of the conversation. You can choose to implement it yourself or you can work with this team and they'll implement it for you. Adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Previous best ever guest, Paul Moore, has a book, and it's called The Perfect Investment, Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. If you're ready to profit from this unprecedented shift, then go get the book. It's on Amazon or Paul's website, wellingscapital.com. Best ever book you've read? Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm, Yes, that's a good one. One of my faves. Best ever 
personal growth experience? What did you learn from it? I would say it was the market crash, 2008. I'm sure you get that a lot. But while you're going through it, it's really painful. And I think, though, you learn more in the down markets than you do the up markets. So that was a great opportunity to experience a lot of pain. But almost everything that I do in my underwriting comes from the failures I saw during that time. And I learned a lot of what to avoid during that time. And what specifically do you do now in your underwriting that you weren't doing before? I think it's some of the stuff that we talked about earlier, the rent growth figures and just the understanding. I mean, it's amazing to go back and think about during that time, no one ever thought values would go down. And just remember that that's possible. And I think justifying all of your numbers as opposed to just penciling in a figure, oh, rent will go up this much or sure, I can get that figure. It's really actually finding some data to back it up. What's your favorite data source? We use CoStar, but there's so much news available on the internet that whether it's the local business journal or Bureau of Labor Statistics, there's a ton of data out there. In fact, there's probably too much data. So that's why we like to focus on CoStar and one particular source so that we're at least consistent mm-hmm. because it, it doesn't feel right to just pick and choose. Today, I'm going to use this <laughs> and tomorrow I'm going to use that just to prove your point. So we like to pick one and stick with it. And that choice for us has been CoStar, but there are a lot of great companies out there like Reese and other analysis sources that people use and trust. Best ever deal you've done? Definitely a deal we did in suburban Atlanta. It was actually a duplex community and the property was being run more like a single family neighborhood than a multifamily property. It was in big distress, so we came in and purchased the property all cash because it was a mess, so it wasn't financeable. And to give an example, it was in such bad condition after a foreclosure that there were residents who, instead of reporting a termite infestation, would just put posters up over the holes in the wall (laughs) and wouldn't even report it because they didn't think anybody would fix anything. So. We really had to sell the vision on that one of what we could turn it into, the transformation we could make. And we were able to do it four years later. It's worth about three times what we paid for it. And we're able to finance out all of our capital. And it's been a great deal. We basically turned it from a single family neighborhood into a multifamily property. What's the biggest mistake you've made on a deal? It's actually on my own personal house. I bought a house at absolute worst time in 2006. (laughs) And I always laugh about it because you say you're a real estate person and I still bought a house in 2006 at the absolute worst time. And just going back and thinking about it, it's funny. I think we all ignored a lot of the signs that some of this stuff didn't make sense and we all paid the price, but hopefully we came out on the other side better for it. What's the best place the best ever listeners can get in touch with you? Best place is our website, www.arkincapital.com and Arkin is A-R-C-A-N. Sweet. Well, Steve, very informative and educational conversation. I know for myself, as well as some best ever listeners, thank you for being on the show, spending some time with us, talking about how your underwriting process is constantly evolving and how to find the real rent comps when we're looking at opportunities and the three ways to find those rent comps, distance, age, and construction quality while taking a close look at the amenities because, as you said, a 2000 property could be a rent comp for a 1980s property. We really got to look into some of the specifics. 
So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Previous best ever guest, Paul Moore, has a book, and it's called The Perfect Investment, Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. If you're ready to profit from this unprecedented shift, then go get the book. It's on Amazon or Paul's website, wellingscapital.com.